Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning and welcome to Awaken. Uh, my name is Jenna. If we haven't met, I am the executive pastor. Uh, if you are visiting or new, we are really glad you're here and would love to know that you are with us. Um, you can go onto the website and fill out a connection card. Someone from our staff, uh, most likely Kathy Solomon, our director of Community Life, will contact you. We would love to hear a little bit more about who you are and how you got here. Um, so you can expect that. And this morning, that is all I have. Well, take it away. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jenna. Um, good morning everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, you're in for a special treat <laughs> this morning um, that definitely deserves a little bit of a backstory. So um, I get to play music with these two guys very often, which I consider such an honor and a privilege, Dan, Jasper. It's so fun. Um, and over the last couple of months, I guess, it's just been often that we found ourselves reminiscing about the music we used to play when we were like in high school and early college. And we have had such a blast <laughs> just like going back in time. Um, and yeah, it's just been this really joyful, like nostalgic experience talking about it and kind of funny actually. And so um, I thought we'd have a little bit of a throwback uh, morning this morning. So we're going to do that. And we just practiced the songs, and actually, instead of it being funny, it actually was really, it kind of got emotional <laughs> for me. And I think because these songs um, carry some weight, um, because we were developing humans when these were such a big part of our lives, and we played them like on a weekly basis. And so, if you're a person that grew up in a similar church context, um, I hope these songs are familiar to, to many of you. And if they're not, I'm so sorry. Um, and I hope that you still feel connected in some way to what we're singing about. Um, but if you're, uh, if you're a person that grew up in a similar context, um, I hope that this brings you to a place where you can appreciate what was um, and feel the weight of that, but then maybe also appreciate what has been and the people that we have become um, since then, which I think is really important to honor in a way. So uh, I really wish we had a drum kit for this first song because the drum intro is iconic. It really is sick is a good word for it. Thank you, Jasper. Um, but we don't. So Dan's going to try his best um, to start it and, you know, set the vibe on acoustic. Here we go.
right, I think we could say amen <laughs> after that. Um, yeah, feels good. All right, before we go on, let's pray this prayer over our kids. That was a uh, serious throwback. Um, I was sitting over here and I thought of this song, uh, John Mark, or Nelson, many of you know, wrote, it's called Summer Camp. And the chorus says, it felt real back then, crying in that dusty chapel. What I assume was God cutting me, cutting through me like a scalpel. I'd give anything to feel that right now. And I just kept thinking about that first song, Hungry, and I was like 22, youth pastor uh, in a dusty chapel. Um, and I just, I kept thinking like how simple it was and how much I thought I knew and how good that felt. Um, But you can't go back, as they say. Time just keeps on moving. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for where we are now. I'm grateful for where I am now. But there, are, there is something about those songs that, that brings you back. Um, so I think we should do that again sometime when the whole room is full of people. That would be really fun. Um, welcome, everybody. My name is Micah. If we've not met, I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken. Uh, I have the privilege and honor to teach week in and week out. Uh, at this church, and I'm grateful for that. Today, we celebrate July the 4th, which is all kinds of things for all kinds of people. I have Christopher Columbus over here to my left, your right, peering down on our gathering. Um, so if you've never been in the building, you'll have to take a look at that. It's actually true. There is a stained glass window with Christopher Columbus in it, which, man, there's just a lot to be said about that. I'll say this, though. Um, happy 4th of July. Um, I was at the annual meeting of the Evangelical Covenant Church last week. And one of the things that I uh, experienced there was something that I'm great, super grateful for and was very, very excited about. Um, while there are some things that are frustrating recently about uh, the denomination and, and the situation we find ourselves in, there are so many good people and there are some really, really great things happening, one of which was a resolution written by uh, a number of our indigenous pastors from Alaska and from Hawaii uh, and, and the lower 48. And it was called a resolution re 
and, uh, a res resolution to repudiate the doctrine of discovery. So if you don't know about the doctrine of discovery, essentially, in short, written by the Catholic Church in like the 14-1500s, allowing this knucklehead over here to lay claim on anything that they landed upon, including the people that were there. So that meant the, uh, the raping, the pillaging, the subjugating of indigenous peoples, and the claiming of land as, um, as found or, or uh, discovered. That's called the doctrine of discovery. So over this last week, um, we debated, uh, had questions about this resolution, and then um, voted to pass the repudiation of the doctrine of discovery as a denomination. We're the, we're the fourth denomination, Christian denomination, that has done so. Um, and I'm really proud of that, and I'm really, really excited about that. So, Christopher Columbus. <laughs> I like that. Um, so this is Lost in Translation, week three, and um, week one we looked at Judges chapter 19, a story, a t terrible story, um, about normalizing what gets normalized in peace and then exaggerated in war. Um, last week we looked at Romans chapter 13, and by the way, like, um, it seems like whenever we, we, we decide not to meet outside, it's like gonna rain and then it doesn't rain, but not only does it not rain, like it turns out to be blue skies. So at eight o'clock, we were loading up the car, you know, we were gonna do this thing, um, it's raining on us, we're like, this is ridiculous. I'm looking at the radar, like big band of showers coming through at 11 o'clock, it's like, this is not a good idea, we should not be doing this. So we said we're gonna cancel, we canceled, and then literally at like 10.45, the skies opened up, it was blue skies all afternoon. So I have a lot of sympathy for the weather people out there. Um, I, I quit that job. I'm looking forward to August 1st when I don't have to decide whether or not we're gonna meet in the park or not. So if you were disappointed, I'm sorry, I was disappointed too. But um, this week is week three of Lost in Translation. We're looking at Genesis chapter 30 and the story of a woman called Tamar. And um, it's a fascinating story. Um, we do this series because, uh, for a number of reasons, first and foremost, I love the Bible. We love the Bible. Uh, and it's a part of our life together. We believe it to be one of the ways that God reveals God's self to us, and so it's a central part of our life. S secondly, it's a really bizarre book. It's written over 2,000 years ago by 66 different books, multiple authors over hundreds of years of time in an ancient world, and so it's not always easy to interpret which means that sometimes it has been used in ways that have been less than helpful for many of us. And so we want to be the kind of church that reclaims the Bible for something that it, it, it is, uh, which is beautiful and compelling and difficult at times, but, but also, um, um, well, what's the word I'm looking for? Lovely at times, um, inspiring at times. And so that's why we do this. And today puts us right in the middle of a conversation about our bodies and women and sexuality, uh, about moments and experiences that have the potential to shape our future and our life, and um, the surprising and unlikely ways that God makes God's self known and moves in our lives. So, exciting day. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So, Genesis chapter 38, if you have your Bibles, turn there, and uh, we will begin in verse 1. And this is basically the entire chapter of Genesis 38 the story of Judah and Tamar. Reads this way, At that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hirah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. 
She became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth still another son and named him Shalah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and, named, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. We'll come back to that. Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just as his brother's. So Tamar went to live in, his fa- in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing their sheep, and his friend Hirah the Ad- Adolamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's, widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down in the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown, she had not been given to him, or he had not been given to her as a wife. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. She had her face covered. Not realizing she was his daughter-in-law, he went over by her Uh, by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. There's a good pickup line. No, that's terrible. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I will send you a goat from my flock. Classic. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge shall I give you? Your seal and its cord, the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute there. So Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. You got to cover your tracks, evidently. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter in law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father in law I am pregnant by the man who owns these. She said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I would not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb and she was giving birth. One of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread, tied it to his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez, which evidently has something to do with that. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zerah, the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, this morning as we gather around this text and this story, it's my hope and prayer that you would do what you always do, um, make it come alive, um, speak to your church, to those who are in its hearing, 
and uh, get the preacher out of the way for anything you might want to say, I pray. In the strong name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, amen, amen, and amen. Okay, friends, um, this is an interesting story, Tamar and Judah. A few notes as we jump into this. Um, uh, First and foremost, the story of Joseph is the longest narrative of any single person in the whole Bible. It goes from Genesis 37 to chapter 50, save Genesis 38, which many people feel like is a bit of an excursus, as it were. Uh, the story of Tamar seems to interrupt the narrative. It seems to have no point, seems to not really be connected. But if you look a little closer, you can actually see some narrative connections. Um, the loss of Judah's sons Ur and Onan seem to kind of preempt or foreshadow the, the apparent loss of Jacob's sons, Joseph and uh, Reuben, or excuse me, Simeon, in the story of Joseph. Uh, there's the presence of a, of a goat, a kid, to trick someone in the story. In Joseph's uh, case, they took the blood of the goat and put it on the robe and tricked uh, their father to think he was dead. In this case, uh, the goat was used by Tamar to kind of get the, the pledge, uh, which she uses later in the story. Uh, In verse 25, there's this word, examine these, which is the same exact phrase that you hear in the Joseph story about the coat and then uh, the cord and the signet ring or seal in the story of Tamar. And then, of course, the birth story of Perez and Zerah sounds a lot like the story of, uh, if you remember, Jacob and Esau, which there was a little bit of a struggle in that one. Um, And then, of course, um, Judah, chapter 38, is the son of Jacob. So if you know your Old Testament history, Jacob uh, becomes Israel, and he has 12 sons by four different wives. So there are 12 of them, and um, essentially, Judah is the half-brother of Joseph. So the story of Joseph, 37 to 50, Judah in 38 is the half-brother of Joseph. So a number of connections there. Today what I want to do is dispel one myth that often comes up with this passage, and then I want to make three observations. They may not be necessarily connected to one another, but this... This whole chapter is a little uh, not connected to to some things. So uh, let's do that. The myth, first and foremost. The myth that Onan, or Onan's seed in this story about uh, Ur's brother, is proof for the prohibition of birth control. Um, this This is true, friends. There is a view out there in the world by many Catholics and some Christians. It's not a majority view, but it is a view that God disapproves of or condemns or prohibits the use of birth, birth control between a married couple based on this passage. Um, that's not, again, it's not a majority view, but it's uh, absolutely out there. It's based on this passage and another one in Genesis chapter 1, where God says, be fruitful and multiply. So the idea that God prohibits or uh, uh, frowns on, disapproves of birth control, Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve, the first command um, invitation given to them, be fruitful and multiply. And then secondly, Genesis 38, the spilling of Onan's seed and the subsequent death of Onan. So God's punishment of death for Onan was because he had sex for something other than procreation. Spilled his seed on the ground and God killed him. So the obvious conclusion here is that God prohibits birth control, even if it's a primitive form of it, um, birth control and sex for anything other than procreation. Now, I'm going to argue that both of those interpretations are erroneous for a whole host of reasons, but let's just stick with our story in Genesis 38. God is angry and kills Onan not because he had sex for pleasure, but actually because he did use a primitive form of birth control. But the reason God is angry is not because God is against birth control, but rather Onan fails to, to fulfill his 
right, his duty to his dead brother, Ur. If you don't know about this, this is called Leverite marriage. It's an ancient practice, and it actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Let me read it for you. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, Ur and Tamar married, Ur dies, Onan, his brother, all right, dies without a son, his widow must marry or must not marry outside of the family. Rather, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out in Israel. However, if a man doesn't want to marry his brother's wife, the woman, Tamar in this case, shall go to the elders of the town at the gate and say, my brother's husband, or my husband's brother, refuses to carry on his name in Israel. He won't fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. And if his brother's widow, um, if he persists, this brother, Onan, then she can essentially go up to the brother. Uh, His brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family's line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Sounds like the title of some weird show. But be that as it may, that is Leverite marriage. So Onan, uh, God's not mad at Onan for spilling his seed on the ground because God prohibits birth control. Rather, God is mad at Onan because he doesn't fulfill his duty of Leverite marriage to marry Tamar, produce a son by that, and then essentially once that duty is fulfilled, all is good. He can kind of like not participate anymore. So this passage does not confirm God's prohibition of birth control. That is a myth. It is a bad reading of the text, and I want to dispel it. So in the event that you are going to use that to say, oh, yeah, God's against birth control, own and seed, don't do it. It's not true. It's really, really off, like way off. In fact, I think the opposite is true. I think God is pro-sex. I think God is all for sex, as much as you want to have with your partner who's consenting, um, with as much birth control as you'd like. So... That's what I'd like to offer you on that. Um, so it's, 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 it's a bad reading of the text to use that in, 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 to, to, to say that God prohibits birth control. That's a, that's a myth. Don't do it. So a couple of observations about this text. Number one, kairos moments. Number two, purity culture. Number three, bloodlines. First, kairos. In Greek, there are two words for time, chronos and kairos. Chronos, which you probably guess is where we get the word chronological from. It's like tick, 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 seconds, moving in a line, linear, like time waits for no person. It keeps on ticking away. Um, This is how we live our lives. It's our wristwatches. It's our phones. It's the clock I'm looking at at the back of the sanctuary. It's every single day. And then there is time as a moment, time as a season, time as an invitation Uh, I like to think about it as a portal which you are invited into an experience, kairos, right? There's a very real sense in which this story comes out of nowhere in the Bible, in Genesis 37, uh, 38, and it seems to have no purpose unless you look at it from the perspective of Judah. So think about Kronos and Kairos, think about Judah. What do we know about him? In Genesis 37, We know that Joseph has strained relationships with his brothers. He has these dreams. He tells them about them. In his dreams, his brothers are serving him and bowing down. They hate him unto death, the text says. We also know that Jacob, the father, sends Joseph to see to the shalom of his brothers while they're watching their flocks out in the the field. They see him coming and they plot to kill him. 
Um, the only name we're given in the story up in Genesis 37 up to this point is Reuben. And Reuben tries to convince his other brothers not to go through with this plan. He tries to save and spare Joseph. His attempts fail. They strip Joseph of his robe, they throw him in a well, and then they sit down and have lunch. Because what else do you do after you've thrown your brother in a well? While they're eating hummus and olives, they see an Ishmaelite caravan going by. And, they, and one person says, hey, if we kill him, we get nothing. We gain nothing. But if we sell him, at least we get some money. And he's not dead. After all, he is our brother. The narrator tells us that this person, you might have guessed, is Judah. Judah speaks these words into the story. Let's not just leave our brother here for dead. Let's sell him so at least we get something for him. Chapter 38 then happens and Judah is the center. So we get the story, Joseph in the well, Judah, let's sell him. And then we get chapter 38, right? Um, Judah finds a wife. He has a bunch of kids. His oldest is Ur. He has a wife named Tamar. Ur dies. Judah instructs Onan to do the Levite marriage thing. He doesn't. Judah, uh, Onan dies. Judah, at this point, thinks Tamar's the problem. Every guy that Judah ends up, that Tamar ends up with, ends up dead. So he's like, why am I going to give the last son of mine, Shelah, to her? So he doesn't. He says, go live with your father, having no intention to give her to Shelah, right? So Judah, the one who hatched the plan to, to essentially sell his brother into slavery, is the same man who's now mistreating his daughter-in-law, who he has obligation and duty to protect because of fear and selfishness, basically. So Judah's wife dies. He sees a prostitute at Timnah after the sheep shearing festival, because I guess that's what you do when you go to shear sheep. A prostitute who is actually his daughter-in-law, a woman who he would legally be bound to to provide an heir, a son, in his dead son's name, and he's unwilling to do it. Time just keeps ticking away until this crescendo moment in the story. It's a little bit like Nathan and David, right? Do you remember the story where Nathan, the prophet, comes before David and tells this story about this, this, this guy who he's got one sheep and the rich man kills the sheep and serves it for dinner and David's like, that man should die. And Nathan's like, you are that man. And in this story, Judah finds out that Tamar's pregnant. He says she should be burned to death. Because she's been unfaithful. She's a prostitute and she's been an adulterous woman. Because she's not supposed to sleep with anybody outside of their family. But of course, he won't give anybody in their family. You see the, 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 the predicament. So she says, you are that man. This child in this womb is actually yours. The text reads, Judah recognized them, the, 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 the cord and the signet, and says, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. I want to suggest that in the narrative of Joseph, Genesis 37 to 50, this is a Kairos moment for Judah. He's confronted with the man that he's become in this moment. Because the next time we see him in Genesis 43, we read this. Then Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy, Benjamin, with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. And then in chapter 44, he's speaking to Joseph, his brother, unknowingly, and he says, now then, let your servant Judah, me, remain here as your slave so that in place of Benjamin, my brother. What do we find? Judah becomes well, changed. 
he's now seeking the shalom of his brothers, which is what Joseph was originally doing when he came and plotted to kill him. Friends, we all make decisions in our lives where we, like Judah, where we choose ourselves at cost to others or before others, where we put our needs and wants and desires before others, even if it harms them. But the God that I see again and again and again in Scripture is a God who just turns on the lights, who slows down Kronos time for us and flips light switches on along the way in order for us to see who it is that we may be becoming, the kinds of choices that we're making that lead to certain inevitable outcomes. And this God is a God all through the text who is gracious, long-suffering, and patient, just slowly flipping light switches on. And as your spiritual advisor, one of them, as one of your pastors, I want to encourage you to pay attention, to not miss these moments, but to step into them like the prodigal son who returns to the father's home because what awaits the prodigal is what awaits you and I when we turn around in these moments. And that is embrace, grace, forgiveness, welcome. So Judah becomes a different person in the story. And the only thing we have that would lead us to believe what or why or how it happened is the story of Tamar. Second observation is purity culture. Now, if I may for just a moment, I want to step into a conversation about our bodies and sexuality and particularly the daughters of Awaken and what we tell them about themselves. Um, As parents and as a spiritual community, even if you don't have children, you impact the, the children of our church. And here's why I want to do that. To be very clear, the story of Tamar is a story about a strong, courageous um, woman who uses her body and sexuality and uh, ability to bring life into the world to secure herself a future and a life that goes beyond, in, in a culture and in a world that doesn't value her beyond sex and progeny and the care of home. And the scriptures doesn't just like not say anything about it, it actually seems to celebrate her. It holds her up as an example. Tamar is the heroine in the story. So I want to talk about this just briefly for a moment, that a woman's decision to use her own body in a way that will secure a future for her, a woman who doesn't allow culture or a man to determine that for her is celebrated. And I want to say it, I want to say it out loud and talk about it because I don't think Christians do. I don't think many Christians know what to do with this story because I've never heard a sermon on it, friends, in my 40-some years of being in the church, going to school, Christian school and seminary. Not a lot of people are talking about Tamar, but we're going to. And what I'm not going to do today is give you answers. I'm not going to offer you like, you know, an easy three-point um, you know, plan on what to do or how to, how to interpret this. Uh, what I am going to do is raise a topic of conversation because I think this passage invites us into this place. And then I'm going to ask you to consider what have you experienced? Like, what's the body of work and influence, discipleship, teaching that you have heard and experienced as a person, man or woman? What's the fruit of that teaching? What does the story of Tamar invite us to consider? And then what do we hope to offer our young people? So, um, 
I don't know if you're on the internets or not, but there's recently um, a, real, a real hubbub out there on the, on the interwebs about a, a guy uh, who shall remain nameless because not, that's not the point, uh, but a singer-songwriter who has written a song that's entitled Modest is Hottest. And it's a parody, it's a sarcastic, it's a satire, but I don't think it's funny. And I'm quite glad that this person has taken it off the internet, you can't find it, the video, and the people who were promoting it has, have also taken it off the internet, and I hope that no one ever sees it again. Um, what I will say about the song is that it reinforces many assumptions and teachings that I grew up with and that many of us grew up with in a Christian culture that we could call purity culture. Um, here are a few lines from the song. Dear daughter, it's me, your father. I think it's time we had a talk. The boys are coming around because you're beautiful and it's all your mother's fault. I've been trying hard to raise you right, no drinking, no smoking, no swearing, but your old man's got a little more advice when it comes to the clothes you're, that you're wearing. Listen, modest is hottest, the latest fashion trend, is a little more Amish and a little less Kardashian. What the boys really love is a turtleneck and a sensible pair of slacks. Honey, modest is hottest, sincerely, your dad. Now the bridge goes on to say all the parents be saying their prayers, that all their girls, they'll be wearing more layers. Moms and dads around the world, yeah, they're on their knees. Lord, make them more like Jesus and less like Cardi B. He then goes on to say, no offense to Cardi B, I'm sure she's great, but I don't think you get to say no offense when you've said something that's really quite offensive. Um, the song is the epitome of purity culture. And I want to offer some broad generalizations, um, descriptions of purity culture, and I'm going to do so without exaggerating for the sake of humor. Um, purity culture is based on uh, heteronormativity and stereotypical gender binaries. So in purity culture, um, straight is assumed and male or female, binary, either or, uh, is what is expected and normal. In this culture, men are strong and courageous except when it comes to their minds and their ability to control their own lust. Women are demure and noble and uh, the object of men's desires and so because of that, they can love their Christian brothers and sisters by covering themselves, you know, turtlenecks and slacks. Furthermore, uh, when married, women are expected to flip on a switch and become super sexual so that they satisfy their husbands. And the song makes clear that Christian fathers are the keepers of their daughters' sexuality and bodies until they give them away in marriage, hopefully to a fine young Christian man. I don't think any of that is exaggeratory. I think that's quite true and um, quite prevalent in many Christian circles. Uh, the comments on this video would lead one to believe that. Now, it was, there was an uproar, and a lot of people pushed back against it, and this person took a lot of flack, which is why they took it down. But just a bit ago, I told you I'm not going to give you answers today. I'm just going to rather raise a question. I'm going to bring us to a conversation. I'm going to ask you, what have you been told? What were you taught about boys and girls, young men and young women, and how they are to act in ways that are honorable and in, uh, consistent with our spiritual and moral base. Um, what were you taught? What were you told? And what's the fruit or the, the, uh, what's the outcome? What has become of that teaching? So what were you told? And then, like, what's the fruit of that teaching? Is it good? Is it bad? Do you want to keep any of it? Is a lot of it harmful? And if so, 
I think this text invites us into a conversation around what, what does Tamar have to teach us about women and about their, their role in our lives and how we uh, hold them or see them? And then what do we hope to offer our children? I was at a, on the Boundary Waters trip a couple weeks ago. We had a two and a half hour conversation around the, around the campfire around this topic. Like what do we want to teach and tell our young people about their bodies and about sex as a spiritual community? Because it is really, really important. It's my belief that this story, Tamar, actually has things for us to learn and we would do well to listen Now, please don't hear me endorsing anything I'm not. I'm not endorsing prostitution. I'm not endorsing using sex as a trick. I'm not endorsing a number of things. So don't hear me saying that. But I am going to just slow down and say, Tamar's the heroine of the story. She's strong, courageous. She takes control of her own body and secures a future for herself, which when we get to the third observation, you'll find is actually quite significant. So what does this mean? I'm not going to give you an answer. But is there anything different that we, we might want to say to our children? If many of us have come from purity culture, and that's the base, or that's what we have in our background, do we want to keep saying those things? And if so, why? And if not, what should we say? That is a question I would invite you to consider with your partner, with Uh, your life group with the people that you trust and do life with because it really, really, really matters. The stakes are quite high. The last observation I want to make is about bloodlines. In the Bible, where you come from really matters. What line or what tribe was a big deal. Matthew's whole gospel starts with who begat who and who begat who and who begat who because Matthew wants you to know that Jesus, the Messiah, comes from Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of Israel, and is connected through this lineage and line all the way up through a whole bunch of different people. What's fascinating is if you go back and you follow that line from Abraham all the way to Jesus, is that there are very unlikely people that that line and that story goes through. Said differently, the story of Christ coming to earth as the Messiah includes outsiders, Gentiles, pagans, women, and even prostitutes. Tamar is connected to the story of Ruth. Ruth is connected to father, or the, the story in the line of David. And if you know your Bible, David is connected to the line of Jesus. Draw it back, friends. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the redemptive work of God in Scripture can be walked all the way back to Tamar. This is a story that reminds us that we should be very careful when we assume we know who and how God will work and move. Which is why I always suggest a little bit of humility when we speak on behalf of God or we make claims about God. I think it's also a story of hope for anyone who's ever felt like they were pushed to the edge. Whoever felt like they have been on the outside in taken advantage of or marginalized, that God does not forget you. In fact, God sees you. The story of the Exodus begins when God heard the cry of the oppressed in Exodus chapter 2. God sees and includes you. One of my favorite passages in the book of Isaiah 
Is the prophet saying, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from the people. Let no eunuch say, I am only a dry tree. To the eunuchs who keep Sabbath and hold fast, God says, I will give in my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Friends, the story of Tamar is complicated and fascinating. It is not a proof for the prohibition of birth control. I think it is a story of a moment where someone is invited to step into a better future, one that God invites them to, Judah in this case. I think it is a moment, a story um, that, that invites us to ask, is there a better message that we can give to our sons and our daughters about how they're to relate to each other? And I think it's a story that reminds us that we should be very careful when we speak on behalf of God or we think we know who or how God will move or act in the world. And it is a story of hope that God uses unlikely people or invites in unlikely people into the story that God is writing, a story of redemption and restoration and renewal. People like, well, shepherds, a teenage woman who gets pregnant out of wedlock, pagans, Gentiles, prostitutes, an Ethiopian eunuch, all kinds of people. So for those of you who have ever felt down and out, left out, maybe you felt like you got thrown in, the, in a well. I love this story. I actually got thrown in a big giant mud puddle when I was in, in uh, elementary school in fifth grade at St. Anthony Park. Springtime, all the snow's melting, big giant puddle in the middle of the playground, and a group of guys decided it would be funny to pick me up and throw me in the middle of it. So I love this story, quite frankly, because it's a reminder that if you've ever been that in that spot, that God continually finds people like that and says, hey, do you want to dance? You want to do something great? Pray with me. God, as we take a moment to consider this story, this woman, Tamar, her actions, uh, would you by your spirit speak, um, draw us in, bring us close, uh, say the things that you might need or want to say to us. So in the varied observations that we've drawn from this text, maybe there's one, maybe there's two um, things that seem to be resonating in our hearts. And so I pray that those would just continue to pulse, that they would have an energy and spirit. You would come alongside of those and walk with us for the next few moments, inviting us to whatever it is that you have for us to make us more and more like this Jesus that we follow, I pray.
that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. He said, this is a new covenant, a new deal, written with my blood. And so whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. As we make our way to the table, it's important for us to remember that this is the table of the Lord. It's not the table of the churches. I don't own it. Pope doesn't own it. Bishops don't own it. But the Christ owns it. And that person says it is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. Those who have faith a lot of faith or a little bit of faith or not much faith at all. Those who have been here often or not for a very long time or ever before. Those who have tried to follow and those who fail. So come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come not because I invite you, but because the Christ invites you to be known, to be fed, to be healed, to be sent back out into the world as a good gift. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And as you take the cup, I'd invite you to hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Well, friends, our time has come nigh. And there's a few things we want to let you know about that are happening in the life of the community. So first and foremost, uh, Discover Awaken is coming up. If you're new around here and you want to hear more about Awaken, uh, I host that class, and uh, it's about an hour, hour and a half. July the 11th, 12.30 to 2.30. Um, I don't know if we're going to do that on Zoom or if we'll do that live. So uh, we'll get back to you. But either way, it's July 11th. Um, there is a serving... Oh, oh yeah. Well, uh, like serving at Awaken. What does that mean? So Jenna has been working uh, tirelessly on uh, an email that's going to be coming out to you about serving at Awaken. So August 1st, we're, we're meeting in the building again. It's like we're starting in a church over from kind of scratch. Some of you volunteered before and um, that hasn't happened for a long time. So um, we're looking for a, a whole bunch of volunteers, friends, to help do the things that we do on Sunday mornings and make our community what it is. So um, if you're doing that before and want to get back into the rhythm, we'd gladly have you back. If you are new and you want to get involved in our church, this is a great way to meet people and to serve and use your gifts. Um, so be looking out for that and opportunities for you to serve at Awaken. Uh, last but not least, there's a beach day. It's coming up July 17th. It's at Rice Creek Chain of Lakes in Lino Lakes. So uh, you can join the campers on their day at the beach. You can RSVP on the calendar or the Awaken Weekly. And I think the only cost is parking for that. So pay attention. We don't want parking tickets. Friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen, grace, and peace.
happy 4th of July. www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter Awaken Community See you next time